This is a 980 CKNW podcast. A little Bob Marley to set up the first conversation of this hour. Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett. Good morning. It is 9.06. The Senate of Canada passed its third reading of the cannabis legislation the other night in Ottawa and loaded it up with all sorts of amendments to send back to the House of Commons for consideration before the House eventually passes it into law. And some of those amendments are contentious to the point where we decided we'd better get a legal opinion on what these senators want to do with the cannabis laws. A real pleasure to welcome back Kirk Tussaw, who is a cannabis lawyer with the Tussaw Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Good morning, Kirk. Welcome back. Thanks, Sterling. I appreciate being back on. That's good to have you with us. Now, the Senate has uh, involved all sorts of amendments, uh, one of which uh, I'll get to in a second in the matter of shareholders. But the one that seems to be the most contentious on the surface of things anyway is they want the provincial uh, governments uh, to uh, they want the provinces not to have the ability to determine uh, home growing uh, laws and, and where and how much and how many plants and all of that stuff. They want that in the uh, in the federal law, leaving the province's uh, flexibility out of it. Yeah, actually, the Senate uh, did pass an amendment which made very clear that provinces could ban home growing if the provinces chose to. And I believe two provinces have uh, already made that decision. Quebec and Manitoba, yeah. Yeah, I think it's highly problematic. I mean, we're, legalization, I think, is supposed to be about removing criminal penalties. It seems to me very, very strange that you can have companies worth billions of dollars uh, growing unlimited amounts of cannabis and selling it to Canadians. Uh, but if uh, if a private citizen wants to grow three plants in their own garden in Quebec or in Manitoba, uh, they can be arrested and, and charged with offenses under the Provincial Offense Act. And if a Canadian elsewhere wants to grow six plants, they can be charged with penalties that uh, they go all the way up to 14 years in jail. That seems to me to be absolutely uh, the opposite of what legalization is supposed to be. Well, it certainly does seem to be a little heavy-handed, Kirk. Now, if I'm living in Quebec, for example, and it goes forward in the provinces, no home grow, and I decide, oh, the feds, it's legal, as you just said. Come on, it's a legal product. If I can make wine in my basement, why can't I grow a few plants in my backyard? And if you come and bust me, I'm going to take you to the Supreme Court of Canada just on principle. You, you shouldn't have the right to deny me the ability to grow a legal product on my own premises. How do you think that would stand up at the Supreme Court level, Kirk? Well, I think it's going to be litigated uh, because undoubtedly someone's going to be charged and we're going to find out the answer to that question. I certainly hope, uh, given that criminal law power is supposed to reside exclusively with the federal government under our Constitution, uh, and the federal government has said this is lawful activity, I would certainly hope that the provinces, uh, A, reconsider politically, but B, um, lose that kind of fight uh, that I think is probably inevitable. Yeah, so you would agree at least to the to the point that someone is going to take this right up to the Supreme Court, and it's probably not even going to take very long either. I think the first uh, the first person with some resources that uh, gets busted uh, by the province is going to do that. Difficulty, of course, uh, Sterling, is that it's not cheap to go to the Supreme Court again. And, no kidding. And, you know, we shouldn't really be requiring citizens of this country to be the gatekeepers to whether or not a law 
passes charter muster. I mean, these provinces need to rethink it. People should not be criminalized for having a home garden at all. All right, let's talk about this whole matter of shareholders. Now, this came from one of the senators from Quebec, and his rationale, Kirk, is where this whole thing about, and go right back to, to Justin Trudeau and his original speech, his original pitch on the legalization of cannabis. The One of the primary motivators for his government to introduce this is to keep uh, drugs and drug trafficking, because that's what they called it, out of the hands of organized crime. And to that end, one of the Quebec senators, Claude Canignon, suggests that shareholders of these companies that are producing cannabis should be uh, required to be disclosed. And and the argument could be made that, look, alcohol and tobacco are also considered to be contentious and somewhat dangerous products in our marketplace, although both perfectly legal, and none of their shareholders are required by anyone to disclose their identities. Why would we apply that particular uh, burden to cannabis? Well, it's part of the continuing stigma and this sort of idea that if you're involved in cannabis, you're somehow automatically criminogenic or come from a criminal background. The, the, it's actually ridiculous when you think about it. Alcohol and, and tobacco, much more dangerous than cannabis. Legal products, uh, you don't have to disclose your shareholders in those companies. Exactly. You shouldn't have, to do, shouldn't have to do it for cannabis. And if you're really worried about organized crime... Look, organized crime is laundering their money through oil, through gas, through restaurants, through car washes. You name it, uh, there's, uh, there's organized crime money being laundered through that activity. It's got nothing to do with cannabis. And the difficulty is, because we have all this stigma, it's already a, uh, it already requires investors to have a bit of confidence to put their money into these, uh, into these legal businesses. Sure. And now you've just had a chilling effect because... You know, some of them may not really want to be disclosed publicly. I mean, that invites the kind of scrutiny that we don't apply to investors in any other industry, and, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me and, at all. And, of course, to sort of ratchet up the argument uh, emotionally in the Senate, one, another Quebec senator suggests that uh, many medical ma- marijuana companies have already been infiltrated by criminal elements through offshore entities. Read again, trying to increase the pressure on, uh, on, the, on the disclosure argument. Well, that's right. And and undoubtedly, I mean, it did come out that there was a fair bit of money that came in from the Cayman Islands, I guess, as as early investments in some of these companies. But look, the reason that happens hasn't got anything to do with criminality and organized crime. The reason that happens is because our taxing authorities have set up systems that people can take advantage of if they bring money in from offshore, not just for cannabis, for any other industry as well. And so if you want to get at that problem, it's tax code reform that gets at that problem, not penalizing people who want to invest in the cannabis sector. Okay, and one more quick uh, uh, look at another one of the amendments before the break, Kirk, and that's this whole matter of swag uh, or promotional items. Uh, uh, again, they're all about, and some of the senators, uh, again, they've been debating this for weeks, of course, and adding these amendments as the debate goes along. So they want now to ban promotional items or swag that advertises cannabis the amendment isn't clear on how how 
uh, deep the ban would go or how it would be workable in terms of police enforcement, but they want uh, promotional items and giveaways removed. So like at the liquor store, sometimes you buy a bottle and it has a little promotional uh, mini airline bottle on the side and you go, hey, bonus, okay. Uh, that's or a they, t-shirt or a hat exactly. or a shot glass, you name it. They would have that banned at the cannabis store. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, you, as you say, that the scope of the ban is potentially so broad. I, I wonder if I could come onto the radio and be referred to as a cannabis lawyer, um, you know, and not violate the ban, or is it just if I have a T-shirt that says that that I'm violating the ban? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is again, Sterling, part of this continued stigma against cannabis, this idea that it should be treated like plutonium, you know, in a manner wildly different than how we treat. Uh, other substances like alcohol or, or even like coffee, it just seems to me to be infantilizing Canadians. You know, we can wear T-shirts uh, that say uh, Tweed, for example, on them mm-hmm. without uh, the, the children of this nation suddenly deciding that they all want to uh, spend their days smoking cannabis. I mean, it, it, it's just nonsense. The other half of that is, you know, the only people that are going to obey these rules are the people that are in the legal industry. They've already got tons of restrictions on marketing their brands, and they're in competition. Let's just be honest. They are in competition with a vibrant and huge, in British Columbia and elsewhere, unlawful industry right. that has the T-shirts, that has the swag, mm-hmm. that isn't going to be subject to this law. And, and, you know, at some point we have to say, look, you know, we have to let these companies be the same as other industries. We have to let them advertise. We have to let them have T-shirts. Uh, and oh, by the way, one of the things we're seeing in legal jurisdictions where they don't have these kinds of restrictions, people are making the decision to use cannabis. They're actually using about 10 to 15% less alcohol, which is a, a net social gain for all Canadians because cannabis is a much safer product than alcohol. So, you know, I go to my local beer store. There's all kinds of colorful labels on craft beer. That's how they draw your attention. That's how they differentiate their product from the next product on the shelf. Um, Why why can't we have that for cannabis? Why do we have to continue to be treated like second-class citizens? It's it's infantilizing. It's absurd. And frankly, I think it violates Section 2 of the Charter. Okay, let me take a quick break. You can freshen your coffee, Mr. Tusa. Uh, Kirk Tusa is with us from the Tusa Law Corporation. He's a cannabis lawyer or a lawyer who specializes or spends a great deal of his time on cannabis cases. And we're talking now about this latest batch of amendments that the Senate has included as they pass the bill back to the House of Commons for eventual passage and proclamation. It was supposed to be this summer. It's more likely to kick in sometime this fall. We'll continue our conversation with Kirk Tusa after this. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett. Good morning. It's 920. Kirk Tusa is a Vancouver lawyer who works with a lot of cannabis cases and is with us this morning to talk about, among other things, the amendments that the Senate included in their passage of the cannabis legislation as they now send it back to the House of Commons for eventual ratification. There's a whole other reading, a whole series of debates. The Conservative Party is uh, quite opposed to all of this, and they're going to delay it, stretch it out as long as they can. Uh, the original July 1st date, of course, 
has long since been abandoned. Uh, the, th- the thinking now is uh, maybe August with actual implementation sometime in the fall. And it's the implementation part, Kirk, that I wanted to draw your attention to in, in this last segment we have together because you mentioned it already. It's it's where this stuff is going to be sold. Uh, who uh, ultimately in Ontario, for example, they've given the monopoly, as Ontario loves to do, to the unions. So they will control the cannabis distribution network in Ontario full stop. In Alberta, where they have, for example, private liquor stores and no government facilities, it's likely to be the opposite. What's it going to be like in B.C.? Well, B.C. is going to be a mix. Uh, Just like we do for alcohol, we're going to have a mix of public and private stores. The province is going to run a number of uh, standalone retail outlets, but they're also going to license uh, uh, private entities to go ahead and run private stores as well. And I think, you know, one of the good things the B.C. government has done is said, look, we're not going to automatically prevent you from participating in the private industry if you were a participant in the formerly unlawful uh, dispensary industry. And that stands in marked contrast to Alberta, which has said, look, if you've run a dispensary in the past, uh, don't bother applying. With, you know, I, I just think that that's uh, not a great idea. Um, we're trying to get rid of the black market. You can't outcompete it right now. You don't have the same products it has. You don't have the same quality it has. Uh, you need to uh, transition that industry out of the shadows and into the light, not to continue to treat it as something that's prohibited. Well, Kirk, we have these pot shops around mostly the city of Vancouver, a couple of Maple Ridge and elsewhere, but mostly in the city of Vancouver. Some of them have business licenses that have paid thirty grand and are sort of legitimate. Others are just winging it. Now, if I'm one of those operations that has a full-on retail operation but no business license, and yet I've established clientele and decent cash flow, uh, will I be eligible to even apply to be a retailer once the cannabis laws go into effect, or am I already out of the game? Well, there are, there are I think, somewhere between 250, 300 dispensaries selling cannabis at the retail level uh, in British Columbia today. Um, pretty much every town of any size in the province has at least one, uh, if not more. I think there's 40 or 50 in Victoria, about 100 in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these stores are everywhere, and, and, you know, the sky hasn't fallen. People are going about their business just like they did before the stores opened. So right. I think it's a pretty good example that uh, all the doom and gloom you kind of heard out of the conservative senators about cannabis being available isn't really going to happen. We've we've kind of done it already here, and, and everything's okay. But they, they are going to be able to apply. They're not going to get any special advantages or disadvantages. Uh, if you were uh, running a dispensary today, you can apply to run a private store in that same location, uh, and the province will... Um, we'll vet all applications on a case-by-case basis. Okay, now one final issue, and this is the one that has a lot of police departments across Canada still concerned, Kirk, and it's the matter of the lack, at least this morning, of uh, a roadside testing device similar to the breathalyzer for alcohol there is no such device there are a number of prototypes being developed uh in the states and here in canada and whoever wins that race is going to make billions because every police department is going to eventually want several but nothing exists right now and the cops are worried because they're not going to be able to determine impairment at the side of the road to the degree that they're able to do so with alcohol you're the lawyer here talk to the cops about uh that device and 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 why uh, they're they're terribly concerned, Kirk. Yeah, you know, I, I think that some of that concern is more political than practical. The fact of the matter is, police have been taking impaired drivers off the road. 
using simple physiological testing uh, for a couple of decades now. It's the standard sort of you see somebody that doesn't look like they're driving safely, you pull them over. The roadside pull, sobriety test. Yeah, eh? you, you form the uh, opinion that they're impaired because of your training. They can't do simple uh, exercises. Sure. And so you give them an administrative suspension, you take them off the road. Um, so that power already exists. I don't think we need to recreate the wheel. The difficulty with a with a roadside device for cannabis is because of the way cannabis is processed in your system. Exactly. The metabolites last an awfully long time. And so, you know, the government has proposed this sort of uh, strict liability threshold of, of metabolites in your blood over which you're, you're deemed to be impaired. Right. And there's two problems with that. One is... Um, though it has nothing to do with whether or not you recently used cannabis or, or are impaired. I've been a medical cannabis consumer uh, for an awfully long time. I have chronic pain. I, I don't think I've been under that threshold uh, of, of three nanograms per milliliter of THC metabolite in my blood for 20 years, uh, whether or not I've consumed cannabis. Right. Day. So, so this is effectively a ban on medical consumers um, ever driving their vehicles, which is absolutely unconscionable. The other part of it is, you know, there's not a lot of science linking any of these thresholds to actual levels of impairment. I mean, we have a lot of that for alcohol. And, and, a, and a lot of work. Curves. We know what it does. We know how it processes out of the system. Our tests are actually quite good for that. So we still have an awful lot of work to do on the scientific part of getting that right, too. Kirk, I have to leave it there because yes, I'm, I'm fresh out of time, and I thank you for yours. Great to have you on the program this morning. Anytime. We appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.